0: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
1: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, Ben Myers, uh, market researcher, Twitterer, destroyer of worlds, you know, all that stuff. But we have a special guest host, Today we're bringing the uh, the planning experience, Uh, Paul Demchak, Batory Management. Tell us a bit about uh, about yourself before we jump in. Thanks, Ben, for uh, for having me today. Um, Yeah, so Paul Demchak
2: uh, run a small planning consulting firm, uh, Batory. Uh, management, um, planning and uh, land development consulting. Um, we're a boutique firm with uh, a couple planners. Uh, Chris Langley and, uh, and Greg Ewens are on the team. Uh, Greg recently joined from the uh, the City of Toronto. And uh, it's fun. We, uh, we kind of like solving the puzzle uh, in terms of uh, breaking down, you know, various official plan policies across the city and, and helping our clients get their, their land approvals, which is uh, more and more
1: challenging apparently by the day. Nice, nice. Another thing that is challenging is finding good employees. So that's why it's great for me to let you know that this show is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. So our next guest manages operations and project execution at OGDC and is responsible for land development, strategy, site acquisition, project approvals, and delivery to the market. With 18-plus years in the industry, working across Canada and the UK, most recently as Senior Vice President of Development for Diamond DiamondCorp, LORI has secured approvals for over 30 million square feet of development across all asset classes, including the 60-acre, 5 million square-foot crosstown community on the former Celestica lands in Toronto. LORI regularly provides advice to governments, the development industry, and nonprofits on emerging planning policy and development matters. In 2016, Lori was named to the Urban Land Institute's Global 40 Under 40 and is a founding member of the ULI Women's Leadership Initiative. Lori is a member of the Waterfront Toronto Board of Directors. As part of her leadership in supporting healthy, vibrant, inclusive communities, Lori was a member of the Black North Housing Committee and advisor to Habitat for Humanity. She currently holds the position of Executive Vice President of Development as Osmington Jorofsky Development Corporation, or OGDC for short. Welcome to the show, Lori Payne.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. How
1: was that? Did that I, did was I, great. Did I nail that did was great. Okay. Great. Um, so...
0: Just makes me sound old. That's all.
1: <laughs> well, lots of good experience. So, I, so our, our listeners want to hear of all the, you know, very interesting things that you've uh, you've done in your career. So
0: I think I need to take the date out of when I won the forty under forty <laughs> award.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to take that off your bio on yeah, the website. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the so so we want to jump right into it. So, obviously, the first question is an easy one: uh, Was the food good at Doug Ford's Stag and Doe? <laughs> <laughs> it was expensive. <laughs> Only kidding. Only kidding. Okay. Well, 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 so you went to UBC. So, so um, you know, are you from out west? You know, what what drew you? Was it the mountains? How did you How did you end up in, in, in UBC?
0: Well, everybody gets attracted to <sighs> Vancouver and UBC, but I was actually born on the other coast. I was born in Newfoundland. Wow. Both my parents are Newfoundlanders, and. Uh, we have deep roots in the rock, but uh, I grew up mostly around Ontario, spent some time in Alberta, like all good Newfoundlanders, <laughs> um, and I ended up at UBC because I wanted an adventure and wanted to try something new, and uh, I started out my education and my career as a real tree hugger, granola type. I brought my own mug <laughs> and dishes when I was walking around campus. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I was the only person on UBC campus with high heels and uh, and plaid on, you know, at the same time. Wow. And, and, so you
1: in uh, an eclectic style back ec-
0: then. Eclectic style, for sure. I, a little bit of Toronto in the kind of eco-nerd world of Vancouver and UBC. So I was in the forestry department doing – environmental conservation. I uh, had a great time out there. What's not to love about BC? And really kind of, it's a long distance, it seems, from development and what I do now. But yeah. there's actually a lot of relationships between how the natural world and natural ecosystems work and how city ecosystems work. And, and the same care and thought needs to go into both things. And it actually translated quite nicely, I think.
1: Interesting. So, what what was the ultimate uh, decision to uh, pursue a master's degree in planning? I saw there a little bit of a little bit of time between your undergrad and your in your your graduate time.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I did one year of G- GIS, Geographic Information Systems. I've never used it, but it did pay for grad school okay. for me. So, <laughs> um, and I kind of ended up at planning school by accident. I was working in the lab at U of T counting bark beetles and doing bird counts and doing all (laughs) kinds of woodsy things. And the Dean of the program there, when I thought about doing my master's said, you know, I think you should look at planning. It it would suit you well. And that's how I ended up there. Wow.
1: Wow. That's interesting. There was
0: Uh, no grand plan. There was no grand plan to do any of it. So Uh,
2: I'm always curious about like my background as a planner, like I'm always curious about how people get into planning, right? Like what, what motivates them? What inspires them to do that? Like I remember as a child, playing SimCity, you know what I mean? I remember um, growing up and my father worked for a developer uh, when I was a child and that like that kind of maybe sparked my brain uh, getting into it. I remember there was a moment when I was a kid where um, I got brought in. My dad was a pro- uh, property manager and he brought me in. I got to see full plans of this plaza that he managed. And I thought I had like the key to the world that no one else got to see, right? <laughs> so I'm always curious, like how does, you know what I mean, what, like, what kind of inspires you to like get into it and, and motivate you to do what you're doing now? So You must have
1: liked it because you, yeah. you went on and to
2: work I liked
0: as a planner. it, um, but but you know, it really wasn't that scientific. I mean, you were clearly inspired and driven from a place uh, that was related to planning and development from the start. I was not. I it really, I even in planning school, I still was on the environmental side of things. I certainly, I didn't even really think of myself as a planner, but I certainly didn't think of myself as a developer at that time. And mm. just uh, you know, this is where where you got to have an open mind to what's out there and lots of opportunities exist. I have a daughter right now who's in grade 12 thinking about where she's going to go to university and what her career path is going to be like. And uh, parents can get caught up in that pretty quickly. (laughs) And I try to remember my path that was pretty random and I just followed my gut and followed the opportunities and I hope that's what young people are doing when they're pursuing school, but also in pursuing their career, because there's a there's a whole big world out there in our industry and you can do a lot of different things. And I've had a good time at all of them.
1: Yeah. So let's 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 go to the first, you know, planning job, your 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 six years at uh, at Urban Strategies. Is there, uh, you know, a project that uh, that sticks out as one of your favorites?
0: Oh, there are a lot of favorites and a lot of favorite clients, too. I mean, that was a big part of the people you get to meet. Uh, actually, before I started Urban Strategies, I did one year as a consultant doing community engagement. And again, this was still in my world of being very uh, community building side of things. And and uh, that taught me a lot, actually. we We were in a lot of situations where people were pretty angry and I was out there on my own in the small firm, trying to deal with a hostile crowd. Um, And uh, that, that is a skill you never lose, right? You need, you need to, you can deal, use that skill in anything that you do. So, but I wanted to get into the practical stuff and I wanted to have a real impact on the places that I was living or acting in. And so Urban Strategies was a great fit. It is a great place to learn about planning and development. I was very fortunate um, to work under some pretty special people, Joe Barrage, George Dark, Frank Lewenberg, Cindy Rotenberg-Walker. Like, these are all people who shaped Toronto as we see it now and really offered mentorship and leadership opportunities for me that uh, I'm grateful for. And uh, what stands out as a project that I really enjoyed was I got the privilege of working in London and Manchester quite a bit when I was at Urban Strategies. Wow. And I worked on a mental health hospital, an old Victorian asylum, like the kind of bedlam places um, (laughs) that are in in Hitchcock movies (laughs) or something. Um, And it looked and felt that way, very bucolic, beautiful in some ways and uh, a little intimidating in others, and I think that was sort of by design. And so this was in South London, uh, an attractive part of the city, a conservative part of the city, which really mattered for the planning process. And uh, we did a whole master planning scheme that was, I think, received as something quite different than what other people were delivering in the UK for master planning at the time. And um, we worked with residents of there. We worked with clinicians. We worked with the surrounding neighborhood. And learning politics outside of your home city and your home country was a real learning curve for a planner. I don't think I was terribly successful at it (laughs) on the planning side, but uh, really learned a lot. Plus, I mean... When you're in your 20s and you're flying to London every two weeks, it's pretty darn cool. Yeah. And uh, while I was flying back and forth, I was pregnant with my daughter and took my time off. And that happened to be a pause in the project. So when I came back, I got to go back to going back and forth to London and working on that project after she was born. You know, some people say that was a hard thing to do, but I was like, "Oh, I've got a whole two nights to sleep by myself all <laughs> through the night." It was so amazing. So, did uh, you
1: take a full uh pregnancy leave or just a, a shorter one?
0: Um, I took I think I took about 10 months. Uh my husband took a month and we moved to a little town in Mexico with our daughter, no cars, no cops, no nothing, just a little village on the water and uh just camped out for a month. Had well, a lot of t- cool.
1: fun. <laughs> well, you got a, you got a lot of fun stories that I, we could be included in here. So.
0: <laughs> We're not talking about real estate at all. But eventually <laughs> we will. Yeah.
1: So six years you spent at uh, Urban Strategy and then you moved to Toronto Community Housing. So how did that? Obviously, I, I know that Urban Strategies works a lot with with Toronto Community Housing. So I assume that's how the relationship started. But what what? you know, um, made you decide to, to to make that move?
0: Well, as you say, like all good consultants, you eventually jump to one of your clients. <laughs> and um, I never would have imagined myself there. And probably not because I didn't see myself in public housing, but really because I didn't see myself as a developer. And uh, I started working in Alexandra Park. That was a big win for us. We were very excited about winning that contract, And that was a proposal that I wrote. And so I had a lot of ownership over it. And working that community was another kind of standout highlight in my career of how much people cared about uh, their neighborhood, their neighbors, and a real actually openness to change. And uh, I really got into it. And I really got into the idea that we were going to build this and figure out how to deliver it. And so that... Made the move to TCHC for me. And I think it was a bridge to be able to move towards development without having necessarily the full range of skills that a developer, that a more traditional development company would look for. Hardest job I've ever done, most hours I've ever worked. So, any, whatever anybody says about working in the public sector, um, I will say from my experience, I've never worked harder, never learned more. And never had as much growth opportunities I had there. It was a crazy time. I think I had in my six years at TCHC, five CEOs and five chief development officers that I reported to, (laughs) maybe more. It was absolute and utter chaos. And um, we did it. We pulled it off. In in the early days, it was me and only a few others, all of whom I'm still very close to because we all went through the trauma together. But we were making a huge difference in people's lives and in the communities we were working in under extremely difficult conditions. You know, you're in the media every day. We, we wore our hoodies into the office so that we didn't end up on the front page of The Sun. And <laughs> uh, anyway, so it, it was, I learned a lot about development. I lo- I learned, it's all about finance when you're building public housing. It's all right. about the money. Um, and... We had to negotiate with the municipality in a way that was really complicated because they were both our regulator and our owner, and were really conflicted a lot of times about how they were to behave in both of those situations, and responsible for the delivery of social housing. Although that part got forgotten from time to time, but so so that everybody was wearing a lot of hats. I also got to know developers a lot better. We, I did at least five transactions with leading developers across the city. And I got to see how each of them did business in a different way, what their strengths were, um, how they analyzed development opportunities. And it was a really unique experience to be able to see those different styles, different approaches, and especially the approach to partnership and how that works. And we were very lucky to have great partners you can't get into business with an organization like TCHC without a real openness uh, and an ability to work as a as a true partner.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, Paul. What? Um, it's interesting. Like that. That's a massive project that you got to be a part of, right? Um, you made a comment about the challenges sometimes in those partnerships and working with a city. Like, I feel like this is probably one of the biggest. How do I put this best? frustrations or like the kind of dichotomy we're going through almost as a culture right now where it's like we need to create these partnerships and like there's almost like um like this is what I love about this podcast Ben right from my experience as an outsider as well it's like developers are needed because we need to build homes for human beings so you know you're working for an organization where we're trying to do some social real social good right for a lot of humans right I'm sure you were part of some really awkward conversations and some tough discussions, like looking back now, and especially where the climate is today in terms of financing some of these projects, like, is there anything you look back on? You're like, I wish we did that. Or there was like some experiences now where you could have brought in something different or, or you just look at it a different way in hindsight.
0: Look, there was a lot to be learned. I don't, I don't have no regrets. Like it, we did the best we could at the time And I think we mostly got it right Mm -hmm. Um, with a lot of things trying to push us in the opposite direction. You know, the politics were difficult. The financials were difficult. Um, We had to build bridges with communities that face a lot of difficulty in their lives and often have a history of trauma that they're coping with too. That, you know, it all is challenging. But uh, by and large, the people that were doing that work we're a hundred percent committed and executed very, very well, and d- without getting ever really getting credit for how well that execution happened. But I think if you talk to any of the developer partners that we worked with, uh, or that TCHD continues to work with, they would say there's nothing but professional commitment and top-notch uh, development and planning work going on there. And uh, you know, just to give you a couple of examples. Uh, Regent Park, which was one of the few projects at TCHC I did not work on, probably started planning in about 2005, uh maybe around 2008 or so ground, my dates might be right. You know, Do you guys have a fact check on this thing? You <laughs> yeah, might yeah, need yeah. one. There won't, there won't be a guy that comes just, out of the just bathroom and fact Just go with me, just trust me on this. One <laughs> coal
1: launched in 2014 fall at $530 a square foot, so. Uh. There you go.
0: <laughs> well, your audience can fact check me yeah. as, as I go. But the point I was trying to make is in a very short amount of time, phase one was under construction. Now they're in phase four and five. Most, if you compare that to other transformative projects around the city, most have not come up that quickly. And there are, you know, Alexander Park, very similar situation. And these aren't normal, easy developments to deal with. These are things that touch people's lives very closely, that go through a lot of political scrutiny and public scrutiny. And so I think there's a lot of success there. I did, my first project at TCHC was um, when I, once I moved over there was uh, a neighborhood called Allenbury Gardens behind Fairview Mall that we did with Fram Developments. It was designated neighborhoods. You'll know this as a planner. What that usually means, it's a no-go zone. Um, It was backed up against a low-rise community. And everybody kind of, nobody was super excited about it when we first started. It had 127 townhouses on it all of which were rent-geared-to-income social housing. And we transformed that. We added 900 units in my day. There's more now. We added 900 units of market housing. That is more than enough to pay to replace the social housing.
2: Right.
0: We had no appeals. We were through the planning process in a year and a half. Construction started, and now that project is almost complete. The last buildings are being finalized now. Really quiet, nondescript, didn't get make a lot of fanfare, which I like. If if you can do that, and uh, made a huge difference, and uh, I, you know, it's one of the things that one of the many things I'm proud of. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I just, you know, I watched. Regent Park from obviously day one from the pre-launch Daniel's pre-launch sales and to you know to see what it is today and the you know the the different architectural styles the amount of people that are lined up for coffee on a on a Saturday morning I mean I I take my kids to the park there right and, and who would have thought that you know 15 years ago that someone would purposely bring their young children to a park and they were like, we want to go to the pool. I'm like, oh, we're not a We can't go in there. And, you know, and we go play basketball or at the, at the courts there. What a fantastic facilities. I mean, what a, just an amazing piece of city building, right. To, to, to merge low income and, and and market rate units and I mean stuff selling there at over eleven hundred dollars a square foot so twice as much as you know what is originally sold for when it first launched the project. So n- no question there, but just a comment on, you know, just how fantastic that relationship is. But but maybe I guess the question would be is how do you feel that the you know the TCHC is doing today? Do you think they're unfairly criticized by by the always. media? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Al- always. Um but that's a you know that's okay. That's part of the learning process, I suppose. It's whenever you're big, you're politicized. You know, TCHC is the second largest public housing provider in North America, in New York City. They house, I don't know what it is, four or five percent of the rental community in, in the GTA. It is a big organization owned by the city that that makes it tough. I would say their challenge today is they're in limbo because there's plans afoot to have them transition to create TO, and those are still underway, and that kind of transition can be very disruptive when the, your day-to-day is already difficult. And it's, it's hard to make the kind of transformative leadership decisions that we were making you know, when I was there however many years ago when you don't really know what your future is. So I hope that gets sorted soon hope I'm not outing any secrets. I, th- I, I, I think this is public knowledge that this yeah. is underway, uh, but it has not been easy and it has not gone, whatever decision, whether it's to stay, development to stay within TCHC or go to the city back to create TO, it just needs to kind of get on with it, I think. And and I think that's really important for the the communities that are affected by change, especially the ones that haven't started that yet and, and to have some real leadership and long-term vision for where they're going. But like I say, a lot of great work comes out of there, out of a lot of people who care a lot about the communities they work in and care a lot about the city and, and are committed to making great places. There's um, the Urban Land Institute conference is coming here in May. And in the first place, I, I'm i part of a group that meets twice a year, and we tour around the cities that ULI visits. And when they were coming to Toronto, the first place that came to mind that people had to visit was Regent Park, because I think as Torontonians, as Canadians, we should be very proud that we can create a place like that, because that, in my mind, would be almost impossible to do in the United States today.
2: I think there's a lot of planners from the United States that point to the region park example and other examples from TCHC as models that they want to adopt, but it's, you're right. It's almost impossible to do that there. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So.
1: Interesting. So, so let's, let's so you've decided at some point in time that you're going to, to leave uh, TCHC and you take the position of senior vice president of development at Diamond Corp. And, And the company obviously was expanding really rapidly. You know, what was it like to be in a firm that was, you know, had such a, aggressive growth mindset.
0: Uh, it was great. And uh, I'm still very close with Steve and all my colleagues there. I uh, I actually left initially. I was doing a deal both with Diamond Core and Context while I was at TCHC. So I got to know those guys quite well. And they bought a little piece of property at Don Mills in Eglinton where the Celestica offices <laughs> were. Um, a 60-acre site on a transit line. Pretty incredible opportunity and I've always in my career one thing that's stuck is large-scale master planning and multi-phase development so when they bought that I called Howard Cohen at Context and I said who's going to do the work for you and uh that's how it happened huh. and uh, so I worked for Context Lifetime and Diamond Core when I first started and uh Celestica and the Celestica development, which is now called Crosstown, was a real passion project and it had every planning issue, Paul, that you could ever imagine. The only thing we (laughs) didn't have, actually, was relocation of rental housing, which I'd just spent six years doing. So that was kind of a nice change of pace. Uh, And again, it went really fast. We were, that was an employment lands conversion. I think probably still the largest employment lands conversion that's been done in Toronto. Oh. May- East Harbor uh, is, but actually by land area it's a little bit smaller, but certainly larger scale. But at the time it was the, by far the largest, and we had an official plan amendment and a rezoning in place within two years of us starting on that project. It's now well into construction, uh, Aspen Ridge, and. Metras have the first office building coming out of the ground that looks great. The cladding's going on now. Well, wow. and the first new housing uh, towers, the the first new condominium towers are also underway. So, it's great to see. As a plan- when when you work as a planner, it takes a long time before you <laughs> see your projects come out <laughs> of the ground. So, that one I'm really excited about. So, that's how I started there. And Really, there's no there was no there's no better place to work. It was it was great, and uh, so I stayed on as Celestica wrapped up, and I led the development team there, and got involved in so many great projects. Learned so much. I learned uh, from Steve and Bob and all the staff that I worked with. No complaints. Yeah. It, it was a great yeah, experience.
1: It's interesting. We talked with uh, with Brian Brown and Bob Blazewski on a previous episode about about the site and how you know, they initially vision envisioned it as just a townhome site, which, you know, just makes you laugh, right. To think that they weren't initially thinking high rise towers there at the, when they, when they were first, you know, bidding for it. Right. And, uh, and I'm still waiting. I'm trying to get Jason Atard from uh, Aspen Ridge to come on so we can, now we can get the, the sales, uh, uh, perspective on, uh, on that one. So. Oh
0: yeah, no, you definitely should. And, uh, there's so many stories you could do a whole pod- podcast on that whole project, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, everybody touched it, who touched it enjoyed it, and I. Uh,
1: yeah, it's interesting. It we a lot see of fun. The, we see those little kind of ghost buildings on the site right now. It's just like the facades, just kind of like hanging out right now. So I'm not sure how they're being integrated. Is it going to be?
0: That's the podium of the three of the first three towers. Okay. So it's a, it's res, a huge the podium. and uh, yes Okay. Um, I thought you were going to ask me when the hockey arena is coming. uh,
1: (laughs) Well, Remington's trying to buy Ottawa, so maybe they'll bring the Senators and uh, put them in the crosstown.
0: (laughs) Well, for for your listeners whose kids play out of the Don Mills Civitan Arena, there is an arena coming there. You'll have to ask the city when it's actually going to get built, uh, but it will replace the Don Mills Civitan Arena, and that was probably our Trojan horse in the whole thing. Because as long as we built an arena... We could build five thousand units. <laughs>
1: wow! Yeah, I mean, we're obviously short on on hockey arenas. I mean, we have we'll have one across the street from where I live, and uh, go out walk the dog at six fifteen a.m. and There's parents <laughs> bringing their kids to hockey, right? So I I can't imagine having to get my kid up and organized to play hockey at six thirty a.m. <laughs> on a freaking weekday, right? Anyway, so 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 Paul, did you have a question on the on the Diamond Corp side or or anything on? Uh, I don't know if you know how well you know the Diamond Corp portfolio, but there's some 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 pretty interesting things that they've worked on.
2: Yeah, even just
1: anecdotally, going
2: back to the Celestica development, like your name, even in like my circles, we'll call it, like was popping up at the time, right? And, um, you know, just to boost you maybe even a little bit more, like everyone at the time when I was talking to, whether it was architects or um, landowners, like your name popped up in discussions because it was like, this person knows how to solve this puzzle, right? You know, it's uh, that—that's a really cool thing that you got to be a part of.
0: Oh, thank well, thank you for saying that. I, I <laughs> yeah. thought you were going to say because because of any number of bossier, <laughs> uh, I don't know what kind of things I trouble I caused, but uh, you, you got to have uh, sharp elbows sometimes. Yeah. But you also have to have. Um, I think the ability to listen and understand where people are coming from. And I think I learned that a lot working at TCHC part of the diamond core mode of work. And one that I instill now in OGDC is the way forward is to understand what each party needs out of the deal and be able to deliver on all of that. And, uh, you know it's much easier now that i'm on the private side you have a fewer people to satisfy but at tchc i had to satisfy council i had to satisfy an external board i had to satisfy tenants i had to satisfy neighbors and being able to kind of listen and hear what everybody needs out of something right. was uh, is a really important part of what we do as developers and city builders And in a site like Celestica, when you have so many different issues and so much expectation, the bigger you are, the more is expected of you. You really had to be able to integrate what everybody was looking for, at least a piece of what everybody was looking for. So it was a lot of fun. And I do enjoy puzzles, actually. I do a lot of jigsaw puzzles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's
2: that's kind of how I look at the planning profession a lot of ways. It's like it's a big puzzle to, to put all the pieces together is the challenging part, right? And the people that can do it the best are probably going to be the most successful, right? Over a longer period of time. Um, Can I ask though, obviously you've started off in consulting, you worked at TCHC and then you went to Diamond Corp. Like the arc of your career, I'm assuming you learn more about the finances behind these projects and you learn more about pro formas, right? And I find in the planning profession, that's a big gap perhaps, right? And like, what's your perspective on that? And how important is that to know that information to create city building to do, to do a better job on these projects, right? Cause sometimes as you and I probably both know, you go into these meetings and if there's no financial understanding of what we're trying to achieve here, then you're not potentially going to get a good outcome. So I'm uh, just curious on your opinion.
0: It's critical. It's really, it is critical. Um, everything is about choice and you have to understand the consequences of those choices. And look, I'm still learning it. Um, yeah. And in now at OG and being responsible for a team and growing a business, I'm I'm learning it much faster than I did in any of my previous iterations, but it has been an evolution. It really is, I think an essential skill. But also sometimes as developers, we add mystery to the financials that we don't need to. You know, everything's kind of a little bit secret, secretive or magical when really what we do is not terribly magical and anybody sure. can replicate a pro forma and we all mostly come to the same conclusions and the principles are all the same. And uh, it was interesting because at TCHC, they would never reveal pro formas to the city. And you would never, you'd never kind of talk about that in the public domain. And then we went through scandals that were outside the development department but transparency became a really important issue. And all, so all of a sudden, we just decided, and there were pro- only five or six of us left there at the time, to- in the development team at the time, we just decided we were going to open it up and we were going to share the truth because the truth was hard, right? Nobody was looking at our proformers and saying we were making a ton of money. Um We had to build a lot of replacement housing. And so... By lifting the veil on what it takes to make a successful project and the risk that a developer, private or public, takes on shouldn't be that mysterious. And I think there's, we could move to a place where we share that more with the approval agencies um, or or others that we're dealing with about the truth of what, what it takes to make a project work in this city and how much risk people – take and how much is invested to make a project work. And I yeah. think that would actually bring us closer together into understanding what the challenges that various parties face in the process. And I think that's happening more and more.
2: I think it is too. Yeah, I think it is too. But I just, I like going through that thought process. It's
1: it's but, it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, we, we see politicians every day talk about how greedy developers are and they're trying to get extra floors and do this and that. And, uh, and or the people that complain on Twitter all day long about how much developers make, and I always ask them, "Well, how much do they make then?" And oh, well, I saw a guy driving a Maybach, and yeah, uh, <laughs> like- <laughs> they have no idea how much you make, and they have no idea the risk involved, and they don't yeah. they don't realize that some of these guys signed their frigging house (laughs) as collateral on these land loans. Can you imagine you screw up at your job and they take your house or right, you know, and they, or they take your business. There's so much on the line. I mean, that's why there's so many, what I call cowboys in this business. Right. But I think we are going, if you
0: don't make a profit, you don't build, right. You know, this, this is, this just needs to be normalized. Every, every other business is expected to take a profit with less risk than the, the risk taken on in the development business. And so, you know, look, there's a few people who have a lot of money. There are a few hockey players who have a lot of money. There are a few <laughs> actors that have a lot of money and a lot that don't, right? So yeah. um, you know, it it has to be profit oriented, but that doesn't and again, I think by lifting a little bit of the veil of secrecy and talking honestly about what it takes to finance a project, because a lot of What we do is driven by what the banks require for very good reason. And, uh, you know, we just got to come to terms with that. Interestingly enough, when I was working in lower-income communities, they got it quicker than anybody. You know, if we we take it down to the level of each of us in our households and how to to make things work and and translate it in that way, then everybody kind of gets the need for trade-offs and then the need... To see a return on investment. Um, but again, I think it's about how we communicate these things.
1: Yeah. It's it's very tough, right? Obviously, the, the increases in development charges that were proposed, 49%, and everyone's like, well, we need transit, we need this, we need that. And I'm like, well... I lived in Dallas, and they didn't pay 25% taxes, and there seems to be roads there and uh, things connected, and uh, I'm like, how is it that all these other cities in North America seem to be able to build proper infrastructure, but we can't unless we charge 25 you know, 25% of the the, the the revenue of a development goes to the government, Yeah, Lori, right? what's, so.
2: what's your perspective on that?
1: Like, I'm, I'm fearful that, especially that you see the development charges
2: increase, at least over my career, it's been pretty exponential and I'm fearful like we're going to a culture where we're just trying to put all the costs of, uh, of, you know, we're paying all the costs that uh, developers pay. And frankly, investors or first time home buyers eventually pay. Right. Um, it just subsidizes the rest of the tax base, right. From the cost that we should be bearing arguably as, as a society in some ways.
0: hundred uh, percent agree. I mean, we've gotten into the habit that development would pay, will pay. And that seems okay with everybody. Oh, it's fine if the rich developers pay. But really what that means is the new home buyer pays. Whatever costs go into the cost of producing a product, development or a building are going to get passed on. That's how business works. That doesn't seem, you know, that makes logical sense. And, uh, you know, there's a real... Maybe I'm going to sound a little too philosophical right now, but I think the biggest issue that we're dealing with as a country and as cities is polarization. And we're getting further and further apart from each other on two ends of the spectrum. And we have those who own homes and who've owned them for a while holding a lot of wealth and those that don't never being able to get there. And part of that comes from we want to keep passing on costs to the new home buyer, the next person in the door or the developer, but we all don't want to be responsible for those societal costs across the board. And, and it's really advantaging those who already own a home and who already have wealth. And that's, that's something we all got to work through. And that goes well beyond the development industry, but I think it's reflective of the mentality that we have, you know, this kind of protect the taxpayer kind of mentality isn't working anymore. And we got to find some new, new approaches.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we've gone a a long part of the, the, the the podcast without actually talking about the (laughs) company that that you work at right now. So, you know, some people may not be, you know, familiar with, uh, with uh, OGDC. Why don't you, Give us the the, the ten thousand square foot uh, uh, perspective on it, and kind of you know what your current role is.
0: Right. Well, um, look, it's been we got started a year and a half ago, and it's been it was a scary thing to do just to to leave Diamond Core and go to OGDC, but it is probably the best career decision I've made, and I'm really having a lot of fun at it. OGDC, it's a long company name is Osmington jarovsky Development Corp. <laughs> um, but uh, it reflects a partnership that was created a year and a half ago between Osmington, which is a real, the real estate investment vehicle for David Thompson, and David jarovsky who was the former president and CEO of First Golf, Great Golf. And they got together a couple of years ago, When Osmington was looking to start developing its own projects and not only just investing in others. And when that started, David approached me to see if I was interested in joining him. And at first, I was pretty reluctant, I think. But I was, you know, it's COVID. I was sitting in my basement thinking, okay.
1: You reached you, you reach your, you know, you reach your six year itch I, I, period where it right. seems that you've had in your career through, through it. So you're like, yeah, time to, time to go.
0: Well, and I think I was fe- really feeling that I wasn't scared of what I was doing anymore. There was no fear. There was no, you know, which really means that I wasn't learning at the same rate and it was time to, to start a new adventure. And, uh, but I was really nervous about it. I really enjoyed my work at Diamond Corp and, uh, so we all got together, uh, just as things were coming out a little bit from from the lockdowns and that kind of thing, and started this development company. We OG sits within the Osmington offices. We have a great culture together. All of my team come in five days a week, four days a week and and most of the Osmington, I think all of the Osmington team is also there. so, We've all enjoyed working together. It started with just me and David. We now have nine people and we have, we are now up to 2.9 million square feet in our pipeline, about 4,500 units. It's been a really busy year and a half. And we've built 4,500
1: units in the pipeline already? Yeah. Wow, (laughs) that's amazing.
0: (laughs) You can say that again, that's okay. You can say that multiple times. So uh, it's been a really busy start with a great group of people. Um, I got to say, I really wasn't sure what I was getting into. And uh, we've all figured it out together and grown it together. And we're involved in some great projects with great partners. Um, Some of them are real estate owners that don't have development expertise. And we've been able to come in and partner with them uh, to unlock some of the value in their lands, we're working with a couple of family offices, um, again that have land, know that there's value there, and want to bring in partners that they can trust and work side by side, where they can stay invested in their land and, and the opportunities that come come with it. And we're going forward together. And it's terrific. We're learning from them, and they're learning from us, and we're gonna we're creating some great projects. Most all of our Uh, projects right now are transit oriented. Most all actually are tall buildings and we hope to expand into other forms and other areas. We're all, all of those are in the 416 right now, but very open to looking at kind of urban or transit oriented environments outside the 416 or across Canada. Over this year and the coming years, we're looking at getting into commercial industrial kind of office is probably off the table for a short period of time or a longer period of time who knows but we have a lot of flexibility and ingenuity to explore new areas and go where the market takes us i think
1: awesome uh, paul, paul you had a question about one of the one of the projects i uh, just Ed again from a planning perspective because <laughs> i love going down this nerdy
2: rabbit hole um so,
0: it's okay i'm a planning nerd okay perfect
2: <laughs> like i'm always curious like you 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 you're obviously focusing on, you mentioned transit oriented communities and without giving away all your secret sauce, like, are you focusing on like some of the changing legislation as it relates to um, MTSAs or uh, for the guests, major transit station areas, right. And like, you know, additional density and population and job targets that the province is allocating to some of those areas, right? Um, Like I have these discussions all the time with clients where we're trying to focus on where the growth is going to be allocated and, you know, you're, you're trying to balance all this, right? Is that... Is that some of the strategy and thought process that goes into it? or
0: Sure. I mean, look, it's very entrepreneurial and very nimble. We're a team of nine now. Yeah. We look at whatever comes our way. We actually haven't had to do a lot of marketing or digging ourselves. A lot of opportunities have come to us, and it's really been about bringing the expertise and the smarts and the instincts to decide where the right place to go is. But you're absolutely right. There is no way to survive in this business right now, if you don't understand what's happening or try at least to understand what's happening with all the legislative and regulatory changes. And I would say that brings a strategic advantage to OG because we know that world. And more importantly, we have the relationships to figure it out and understand it. Right. And um, it is hard now to just start a development company on your own or to start a start doing a development on your own, because you soon get into it and realize that most of the rules are unwritten <laughs> um, and that there is a style and a way to do things that helps move you forward. And there's a style and a way of do, doing things that has the ab- exact opposite effect. Right. So it is. It is not for the faint of heart. Nope. Uh, you need a lot of a lot more expertise, I think, than you used to, and you really need to be pay, paying attention because the landscape is changing every day. Hopefully, I think now we're moving in a positive direction. I think we've had some, what I would call disruptive change, a lot of disruptive change, multiple disruptors over the last three years. And we're starting. We're starting to make sense of it, and I'm. I'm really optimistic, and I think, for the first time in a long time, wherever you sit in terms of your views on development and city building, there's a an understanding that we have to deliver more supply, and we yeah. have to. We have a lot of work to do, and we're behind.
2: That's my silver lining to all this too. It's like I think there's. Um there's a feeling in the public that I've I haven't seen for in my whole career. Where now, like I was at a public meeting last night, and there was a bunch of people that came out obviously in opposition to the project. But the opposite happened too, where people come out and said, like, I I want to live in this neighborhood, but I can't afford it. There's now townhomes permitted. Great, like we need more of this, right? And I've I've never seen this happen before until the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. Well, and even the since better or more homes faster bill 23 came out as much as there's a lot of consternation and and perhaps some anger around that um i've noticed a shift in attitudes around people really looking to solve problems when we're dealing with municipalities or we're dealing with agencies or communities that big shift in legislative change, whether you support it or you don't, has caused us all to figure things out differently. And mm-hmm. and I think the smart ones out there will start making a deal and figuring it out and ensuring that we can, like I said earlier, that everybody gets what they need out of it. And I'm really seeing that in our projects. We We do not shy away from the hard stuff. I'm dealing with a site in Midtown, not usually an area that's easy to do development in, where the land is designated parkland. We're going to be building a 39-story-ish building there, and we're figuring it out. Um, We dealt with heritage. We've dealt with um, building on ravine edges. You know, all of these problems, you got to... Get in the weeds with people and figure it out, and and I'm seeing a willingness to do that.
1: Cool. So So after
2: this podcast, I'm probably gonna go home and like Google the site and then try to solve the puzzle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) good, good.
1: Well, I I did want to ask you about the one one project because I just think it it looks fantastic, and uh, now that you've kind of released renderings on your website. 63 stories at 350 Bloor, 600,000 square feet of GFA. It has the kind of brutalist base of the, you know, the existing Rogers building. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about this project, you know, and how are you balancing, obviously, the the costs of retaining this, you know, extremely unique office building with, you know, building a high-rise tower above it?
0: Well, look. First of all, why not? You're at uh, you're at Mount Pleasant and Bloor. You've got the best subway access in the city. We should. These are the places we should be building. And yes, they're going to be complicated. Um, I can't reveal all the secrets just yet on how we're unlocking it, but we are unlocking it, and uh, that's going to be a phenomenal project we are working with Rogers on that and Roger's a been a great partner and when we what I will say that we got right when we started planning that building is we we did think about what the community was looking for and what the city was looking for that is not a heritage building today some would argue it should never be one. Huh, um, and I love
1: it. I think it looks fantastic. Right. So when I when I saw it for sale a few years ago, I was like, oh, someone's going to tear down that building and they're going <laughs> to get a lot of sh- shit.
0: Well, the plan was, I mean, I think the first time around or when f- developers first looked at it, the intent was to take it down. Um, there was a lot of I don't know. Blog fear, blogosphere commentary on that. Maybe Ben, you were one of the ones commenting. No, no uh, don't,
1: don't, don't go on to Urban Toronto anymore. It's okay. <laughs> a wise move, Ben. Yeah. But, but anyways. They don't like me anymore.
0: We we heard that feedback and we worked closely with Rogers and we, we decided we weren't going to play games. We were going to design a building that respected what was there today or what people valued and what was there today but also put forward the conditions under which we could build that. And um, it's not an easy location. You know, where do you stage? Where do you load materials in and out? How do you deal with the the cranes? How do you deal with lots of things? How do you hold those walls up if you were leaving it in place? And so we proposed something to the city that was a little bit different and unconventional in how we were going to approach the heritage or – or not heritage there <laughs> um and uh, we're making headway you'll you'll have to wait to see the final chapter of that nice. but um like i said i think it is coming to a place where we're all working together and we're just now embarking on working with the neighboring uh residents uh we've had some community meetings but we're re- we're doing will what will be a series of of working sessions to help people understand exactly how We think the project can work, but we're also open to other ideas and how we can make it work better.
1: Interesting. Interesting. But it's a
0: great looking building, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's fantastic. I I like, I'm usually not like a brutalist guy. That's not my favorite architectural style, but this building just stands out. It's just so symmetrical. I just, you know, I don't know. It just, it, uh, it's, it's a really unique project and I did notice that you're kind of trying to keep the, uh, the, 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 a little bit of the style of the building going up. Do you think this is kind of not something I thought about (laughs) beforehand, but do you think we're going to get away from, you know, all glass buildings, window, window to wall and go to more smaller windows that you would see in a more older sixties apartments?
0: Well, Toronto green standard is driving us there for sure. And, um, you know, Look, there is lots of room for innovation in what we do. And I think that's going to have to be balanced with cost as always. And that's a really boring developer-y thing to say, but um, there's a balance. And I think leaders in our industry are thinking and working on how to decrease the environmental impact of what we build. It's not easy. It's not going to change overnight. And we have to work with labor partners and we have to work with design teams and codes and all of the many things that go into deciding what a building is going to look like and how much window and wall there's going to be. But I think that work is underway. Maybe it won't come as fast as some like, but um, I think, I think we have to innovate and I think we have to explore new ideas.
1: That's interesting. I know I get asked by my clients all the time, what is the value of a balcony? (laughs) Right. Um, Because, you know because of those green standards there's developers looking to 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 get rid of them and uh, just from an aesthetic point of view if you look at any building without balconies versus a building with balconies they always look better without right the, sure. the office buildings Always score way higher in any of these, the Pug Awards or the Urban Toronto Awards or anything like that. So it's an interesting discussion, and obviously coming out of COVID, where everyone wanted that outdoor space, um, but you now you're seeing a lot of rental buildings come online with no balconies, and they're leasing up pretty quickly, right? Yeah. At at high rates. So I think a lot of condo developers are now thinking to themselves, well, do I really need these? Because you know, just I draw the parallel to parking. Right, going back 15 years, people say Ben can we get rid of parking? Uh, and I said, well, can I do a build? i got to do a 400 unit building without parking. And I'm like, well, one blur just sold, you know, 400 units without parking just because it's an 800 unit building. Right. So, yes, it's two subway lines. But, yeah, I think you probably could if it was transit enough. And now we're seeing, you know, buildings built 15 years ago with 80 percent parking ratios and now buildings with 10 percent, 15 percent parking ratio. So I'm just uh, drawing a parallel. Will we see that, you know, the investors slowly say, I don't need a balcony. Well,
0: right? I I, th- I think you, you hit the nail right on the head there. It really is about the consumer and, who, and getting that education and seeing that shift happen. Look, especially now, everybody is terrified about sales and you need to get those sales and you ne- need to get them pretty early on. And... We need the market to shift that way. And there's a bunch of drivers for that. I agree with you on the parking. I mean, we're getting our parking numbers down as low as possible. As everybody in the industry knows, we lose money on building parking. So we want to provide the least we can with still allowing ourselves to meet the sales requirements of the particular building. And uh, so... The market is shifting, I think partially because of cost. Um, and if we can get the consumer to be more savvy about uh decisions they make about where they invest for things like environmental impact or carbon footprint and those kinds of things, I think that will be very helpful. And we, you know, again, it's that tension between being able to sell the unit and, and satisfy the, the consumers out there and getting the design right and, and designing because Nobody's making money off balconies either. Yeah. Um right. and but we gotta provide them to sell the units. And so that's the shift that we need to happen. So uh it takes a little bit of bravery too, and to be the first one to go out and do it. And I don't even wanna be the first one to to, to, to do it. I, I don't wanna risk my project and other yeah. people aren't gonna wanna risk theirs. And so I think it's coming, but I think we have work to do on the, the consumer side. I,
1: I need buildings with sensors so I can see how often their their balcony doors are open and I can assess that data. And we can say to someone that owns that unit, do you want to pay $65,000 to be outside 19 times a year? Yeah. And just present them with that those facts and say, is that worth it to you? could you just go down the elevator and go for a walk or go have a smoke there or whatever? I'm tall, but I'm uh, afraid of heights. So I don't want a balcony (laughs) or at least if I have a balcony, I need the railings. (laughs) up to my chin. So they're not meant for six, six guys, railings on uh condo balconies. That's for sure. Then you're going to have to get back to like raw data collection
2: of counting people on balconies, it's just like <laughs> people count lights on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just,
1: yeah. Yeah. Like those traffic counters. Hey, that guy out there. Oh, wait a second. No. oh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and look, I mean, it's challenging just coming out of COVID when people wanted access to outdoor space, that became a real big issue as we were, you know, dealing with the post pandemic marketplace and and maybe that will shift a little bit with time as well I think also if we invest a lot in in public realm I think I'd love to see the city investing more in public realm there's a lot of parkland dollars out there that we should be getting out there
1: (laughs) Um, billions of dollars (laughs) yeah so I I have a a weird question for you oh I love that now that, that Paul is here I'm a consultant obviously on the on the on the market revenue side. Twenty years from now I don't think my job's gonna exist. I think I will be a consultant into a computer that properly programs a building, that will look at the the GFA of the building, that will look at the needs of the elevators, that will look at maximizing the efficiency of these buildings, that will look at all the market data and build a proper building for you. Yeah. I think of that obviously on the planning side, that this could be something that could be much more easily done than even my job uh, uh, done by a computer, done by AI. When do you think the Toronto planning department will be replaced by Google or Microsoft (laughs) planning AI?
0: Is this on your Christmas list? (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, It's, uh, you know, and there are some initial attempts at trying to help do planning over over kind of, I don't know if it's AI, but, but to bring some, some prop tech to, to those.
1: And we're friends with Monica. We had Monica do some work on our, uh, from, uh, from ratio city to work on our land report. So, you know, I just see that as a, you know, how can that not eventually grow into it? Right.
0: I I think, I I think that's right. And I think we have to figure out how to, get the right information into those, especially because every single site is different. Mm -hmm. And my challenge in using any of those kind of software programs is they're very good if it's a square site that meets the traditional rules. But there are no square sites, and there are no sites that (laughs) meet traditional rules anymore. And so how to... And look, I am the furthest thing from a tech person there is. um, But... I think that we got to get to that point because what I always say to my team and people I work with is we are in the human business. We are in the people understanding what's in people's minds and responding to feedback and human emotion and human desires and and we have some work to do. I think before these kinds of things get. To that.
1: Well the sensor on people's phones, so when they look at their phone, we can tell if they're angry when they're rendering a that, show. They're like, right. oh, they're a negative idea. eight because of that. Oh, it's in my neighborhood. <laughs> 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 um,
0: my husband was listening to a podcast the other day and he was talking and they, it was an uh, oh no, he was listening to the agenda. The agenda we are agenda mm, followers at our house.
1: Steve Bacon, of course. And
0: um and they were talking about AI, and one of the commentators was on there saying AI is not intelligence. It's just a lot of data being processed. It's, there's no brain. And, and so where, where do we get to the point where we have such good data that you don't need the brain to step in? And that's kind of how I think about being replaced as a planner. Um, you know, I don't know. What do I got left? 20 years of working? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be close. Be it's going to be close. Yeah. Um, but
1: uh, it, 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 with the
0: magic, the, I think what we do, um, and Paul, what you do, is we take what the rules are, then we use that to imagine what the best solution yeah. is. And the optimization piece, I think, is what the human element is. The rule, I would look, that kind of software, and as it gets more and more sophisticated, to tell me the basics of what I need to know and the, what the rules are of the game is fantastic because there are so many rules, and you'll always miss one or not catch one. And so, if they can tell me the rules, and then I can spend my time thinking about how I'm going to break them, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I really that that I think is a really good combination of bringing the technology with the the human ingenuity?
2: I share the same perspective. I think it's, there's going to be, again, going back to the puzzle discussion, you're going to be able to have all these inputs perhaps a lot faster, right? And maybe that helps you solve them a lot faster. I don't know if it, we'll see, maybe it will do that all for us, but right now it's,
1: yeah. I, like I think the problem with my, my job is is just the data collection is not there, right? The data collection yes. that needs to be done is is not being done, right? So I can look at a, a unit and it's it's fourteen hundred and thirty dollars a square foot, right? But well you need to know how big it is? Is you know what are the dimensions of the unit? Where is it? Right. Where is in the? Where it is, is it in the building? Where you know what are the? You know what is it? Is, is the neighbor is blocked by the neighboring building? Is it above the friggin uh, uh, m- muffin store? Right? You know, like all this. You're never gonna collect enough data right. to properly program these 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 things i mean not yet i mean maybe it's 20 years maybe it's 30 years but it's just the stuff is not being collected if you don't collect it now you can never train a computer on on these things in the future you can yeah i mean you can probably triangulate all right and get yeah. a, and a get a decent idea but it's still not going to tell you because the the every piece of real estate is different these units all have different uh <laughs> you know dimensions and and those aren't being calculated the, the thing that always bugs me and always bugged me but I I find is is some people try to put their own preferences on how buildings should be designed and the interiors of the units all those shoebox condos so I would never live in one I'm like what's you're not living there (laughs) Right. Someone else is living there. Someone that is 22 years old that wants, that has $1,500 in rent to spend and they want to be right downtown. So maybe they want to live in 285 square feet and they go out and they party every single night and, and they're never home. So they don't care that that doesn't have a separate bedroom. Right. Or, or. And they
0: ride transit and they have a less you know, they pick up their grocery, they walk to their grocery store and they have a far less impact on this planet than the big homes. And I, uh, you know, we got to come to terms with that, that the ideals that we hold, maybe as Canadians, maybe as older Canadians, who have been here a while is, you know, the t- two car garage and the big home and the four bedrooms and all of this stuff it- is just not a sustainable way of continuing. But, uh, That we can create livable spaces.
1: Anyways, I mean, I used to do low-rise consulting and would travel to all the suburban communities. And I thought that's what I wanted. I thought I wanted to live in some collection of houses that all look the same and get in my car and drive 15 miles to go anywhere. Right. And then I just, you know, once I started living in the city, I was like, wow. I'd much rather sacrifice space to be close to everything that's going on versus, you know, living in the burbs and going to the power center. No offense, that's Paul. Cause Paul goes to the power center and the Walmart. And I'm he, a boring uh, suburban dad now. <laughs> I, I was, it's funny.
2: I, I live right downtown Toronto and then my first daughter was born and like, you know, thought I was going to be a good urban planner and raise kids in the city. And I'm like, I can't do this.
1: I can't do this. Fair enough. Fair enough. 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 <laughs> it's just
0: not, it's not attainable for everybody yeah. these days. And I think that's, that's what yeah. we got to figure. Mean, out?
1: You need to be pretty well off. I mean, we have three kids, right? And I and uh, I look at that bank account; I'm certainly not going up with all the extracurricular <laughs> activities and all the things that go going on. But, uh, anyways, we 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 veered off, and yeah, I think yeah, we are. A- I think we are getting close to our uh, or we've surpassed our hour that we allocated for it. So, uh, do you have any last question before we get into the rapid fire? Um. Yeah, there is one question. So,
2: just on, you made a comment about how we're kind of like, you're worried about the polarization, right? Of where we're going right now. Like I look at this from both perspectives sometimes from like maybe the silver lining about like kind of what we're going through, at least in our profession and the, you know, massive inequality that we're seeing is that maybe we're going to go through this like cultural change in the next generation. That's going to want to live in urban environments because they're kind of like forced to from a price perspective. And then maybe that will force change on like planning policy. Right. And you are seeing right now sometimes in some municipalities without naming them all, how challenging some of these planning approval processes are. Like I'm I'm really hopeful like long term some of these challenges and this inflection point maybe we're in is going to change that. But I'm curious on your perspective.
0: Well you know what the people who are now coming into those roles and and be are gonna be the decision makers in those things are facing those same pressures. Mm-hmm. The ones that were there before 10 years ago didn't have those same pressures and mostly were homeowners who had a a different perspective and different opportunities. I think that's going to change things. Maybe not fast enough for my liking because I'm quite an impatient person, but uh, (laughs) I I think that's going to change things. And look, we are in a dark year. 23 is going to be tough for the industry. It's going to be tough for the housing market and... um, I'm really optimistic, you know, I'm an optimistic by nature and my company is well positioned in this tightening this year or this downturn or whatever we're going to call it. But I think that's going to drive some changing attitudes too because I, th- I think we, ha- like I said, I think we have a tough year ahead, maybe a tough couple of years, hopefully not. And it's going to be really hard for some people. Yeah, It's going to be really hard for some developers too. Well,
1: um, well. Well, we'll end on that. Uh, no, we're not no, no. End let's on, not we end, we won't on end on that sovereign note. That sober note but no. But, but, so the rapid fire rapid basically we, we, we hit just with some quick questions. We're looking like five to to to, to ten, uh, ten word answers. Uh, I'm gonna switch it up on Paul and uh, on our list here, just because as there you can was,
0: tell, I'm not good at five to ten words, just, but I'll do my best.
1: <laughs> just because we didn't we didn't get to one of the questions on, on that I had on my list, but I want to add it to the rapid fire. And again, you can just be one word answers if you want. What's more difficult? Completing a triathlon or getting a high rise condo approved in Toronto?
0: I've done both. (laughs) Uh, High rise by a landslide. By a
1: landslide? Wow. Okay. okay. You
0: can at least, you just have to train for a triathlon. Eventually, you'll be able to do it. You might not do it fast, but you'll be able to do it. Yeah. You can train to build a high rise (laughs) condo and maybe it'll happen or maybe it won't.
1: That's hilarious. (laughs) All right. Go ahead. Yeah, you can go. Well, the first one, we kind of we understand what happened, but you can switch that question around if you want.
2: Um, Who would you think would be the next potential mayor for the city?
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, I, I'm checking to say, and I'm not checking as okay. many things, but uh, can I say, it? I'm hopeful it'll be a woman.
1: Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's uh, a good response. That's I, a good response. And
0: I, I'm actually hopeful it'll be more than that. And it'll be a person of color that somebody that represents a different perspective on the city.
1: Um, when do average resale prices top the early 2022 peak level in GTA?
0: When do the average prices top the 2020?
1: So when do we get above the peak?
0: Oh God, that's a, I don't like predictions, but, uh, (laughs) it ain't in 2023. And, um, you know, part of that was also driven by rising costs. A lot of that was driven by rising costs. But, you know, we talked about government costs, but also just material costs, labor costs, every cost was going up. And so I think a lot depends on what happens with costs and in, in how we get there. And And maybe it's OK if it moderates a bit and the costs stay low and we, we don't have this. You know, I think it's a good thing if we don't see the price increases come as quickly.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: Will high density land prices in Toronto be lower in Q4 2023 versus Q4
0: 2022?
1: Yes. Hmm, nice. Are the Build Awards worthwhile or cringeworthy backslapping?
0: I'm a big build champion. <laughs> I think they're doing lots of great things. I've only been to the Build, build Awards once and I got an award so wow, I loved it. Wow.
1: <laughs> one for one.
0: Yeah, so uh so uh but honestly, I do. I actually think Build is doing a lot of great things for public policy and and putting out a lot of great material. So nice.
1: Yeah.
2: Bill twenty three question: Will okay. we build one point five million homes in ten years? <laughs> I
0: really wish we would. It's a really steep mountain to climb. Yep. Uh, we need it. I will say we definitely need it, but I don't know that we can get there. We really need some labor help on the labor front.
1: Yep. I should have mentioned that not all these questions are particularly real estate related. So who would win in a fight? Shrek or Popeye?
0: Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Popeye. I'm going old school. You're
1: going old school? All right. All right. I thought that was a pretty funny question, to be honest with you. I like it. I had to think about it for a lot.
2: (laughs) Uh, What's more important, a uh, a subway stop or uh, half a dozen trees?
0: Oh God. I'm a forestry major. We said that, right? (laughs) Um, Everything's about context.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. We like that. Um, Should we get rid of bathtubs in most new condos?
0: I hate baths, so sure. Why not? Okay.
2: Um, (laughs) Who's better to deal with architects or realtors?
0: Oh, I love them all.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not. I, I I depend on both of them, so I'm not looking to
2: piss anybody off. From, from my perspective, um, <laughs> you can piss
1: some people off. Bo- yeah. Both both those types of humans can be very
2: emotional creatures.
1: Well, you're 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 you have a uh, realtor's license as well. All right, and, and so, my wife's a realtor. Yep. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's true. So therefore, they are difficult to deal with. <laughs>
0: I like emotional creatures. I'm one myself. <laughs>
1: Okay, last one. Who is funnier, Bob Lazewski or Steve Diamond?
0: <laughs> Bob, I think Steve would appreciate if I said it was Bob and I think <laughs> Steve would agree with me.
1: <laughs> well, before we go, I know that you, you, you do get involved in Habitat for Humanity. You, we, we mentioned the Black North. Is there anything you want to say about those uh, initiatives or others that you're involved in before we uh, wrap it up today?
0: You know, it's a privilege to be part of that stuff and to be invited to those tables and to make a contribution. I enjoy, you know, it's part of what makes our jobs interesting. And I think it's part of our responsibility and what we do. It's great.
1: Nice. And so if someone wants to uh, find more about your company or you, where should they go? Are you, are you TikToking, Instagram, are you you Twitter? What do you, you know, Snapchat? What's going on with you?
0: Um, (laughs) You know what? We can do better on the socials, I think. We're out there. <laughs> but uh, ogdc.ca is where you'll find us. And I'm going to get working on the socials so that we up that. It won't be me. It won't be <laughs> it me. Won't be,
1: yeah, you're too much on your plate. But, so. um,
0: yeah, that's where you can find us. And uh, love to hear from folks.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for for coming out. I know you're you're an East Ender anyway, so it wasn't too much of a hike for you. So Yeah, yeah, no, again, love the East End. Again, we appreciate your insight. Likewise.
0: Thanks for having me. Good talking with you guys.
1: Thanks, Lori.